0: Well, good morning. Everyone made it through the snow this morning. you got to love Calgary, right? Never know what you're going to get. It said rain yesterday, so I was all prepared for that. Well, it's great to be with you this morning and to uh, open up God's Word together, to hear what God has to say to us, both um, as individuals, as followers of Jesus, and as a community, as a a body of Christ. One one little sort of instantiation of the body of Christ in this uh, full kingdom that God has spread across His world. So let me start with something not very spiritual. Uh, when I would get home from school, when I was young, I had a favorite after-school cartoon. <laughs> Pinky and the Brain. Anyone else? Yeah. But, so... Am I Pinky or the Brain? I think you know. Obviously, Pinky. Uh, so the, the, if you don't know Pinky and the Brain, it was like the shortest cartoon ever. I think it was like five or ten minute little episodes. And it was the exact same thing every episode. At some point, very early on in the episode, Pinky, who, if you can't figure it out, is the tall, slender one, would say to Brain, hey, Brain, what are we going to do today? And Brain would turn to him and say, same thing we do every day Pinky, try and take over the world. And then of course Brain would have some harebrained idea of how they were going to take over the world. It was very complex and very layered and very detailed and they had to follow it to a T and of course at some point in this grand master evil plan, Pinky would mess things up and they would not take over the world. All right. So, Jonathan Edwards doesn't really have anything to do with this. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards lived in the early part of the 18th century, struggled with segues. He, he looks a little bit more like Pinky, but let me tell you, he is definitely a little bit more like Brain. Not on the evil part of Brain, but in the like giant head. In fact, In fact, his nickname, Jonathan Edwards, is America's Theologian. He is considered the greatest ever theological mind who ever has written and lived in North America. So he looks like Pinky, sort of a little bit more inclined like Brain. Jonathan Edwards has a fascinating story. Uh, He's left us with all of these beautiful writings. In fact, he's he's very misunderstood. And if you have a, a sort of idea of what Edwards was like or what he wrote on, it's probably not quite accurate. He got a bad rap for one sermon, which is terrifying if you're a preacher. It's like, come on, I preach thousands of sermons and everyone just remembers this one. All right, a little bitter about that. Uh, Edwards had this, um, this idea when he was young that God had these great plans for him. Sort of plans of grandeur, almost on the scale of brain plans. Although, again, not the evil part, right? He was um, college educated, which in the early 18th century, not a lot of people were college educated. He he had a bit of a complex because he had 10 sisters. There was 11 kids in the Edwards family. He was the only boy. And so they were all certain that great things were going to come for Jonathan. They had to. He had ten sisters, right? After he graduated college, he had his sights set on a big church in the great metropolis of America, New Amsterdam. We know as New York now. It was all lining up. Things were looking good. It looked like he was going to get this opportunity to have this pulpit. And then at the last minute, it fell through. And Edwards moves back home I'm not sure if his parents had a basement, but that's sort of how I envision it. Into his parents' basement with his ten sisters in the backwoods out of town, Northampton, sort of Western Massachusetts. And you gotta think that he's wondering, what, what is going on? God has gifted me with this, this brilliant intellect. I want to serve him. I thought everything was aligning. I thought I was gonna get this, this great church in New York City. I thought everything was gonna change. But he doesn't pout about it. He doesn't go into a deep state of depression and say, Oh, why me, God? No, instead he does something very different. He writes 70 resolutions. 70 resolutions that he commits to live by. In fact, he doesn't just write these resolutions. He writes them and then commits to re-reading them every week. Once a week, he reads his resolutions so I'm not going to read them all to you. Here's a couple, though. Number six, resolved. To live with all my might while I do live. To live with with a certain level of of zeal, a, a passionate resolve, refusing simply to go through the motions or to resign himself to apathy. Resolution number 43. Never henceforth until I die to act as if I was any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. That is this, this faithful commitment that he won't just live with, with zeal, that he won't do everything with intentionality and attention, but that he will do it directed to or devoted to God's purposes, not his own that he will be other-directed or outward-directed, so that it's not actually about him. <laughs> this is where he's very different from brain. But it's about God's work in the world. So after he moves home, his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard uh, decides he's going to retire from ministry. He was a pastor as well. And he invites Edwards to, to take over his church. Remember, this is Northampton, it's backwoods. There's about maybe 500 people in the town. But Edwards decides that this is what God is asking him to do, so he does. And in 1734, he preaches a series of sermons, and something very surprising happens. Revival breaks out in Northampton. So much so, we're told, that everyone in the town was in church on Sunday. One church 500 people. And Edwards is, is sort of blown away by this. He's, he's caught off guard by this. And so he scribbles down some notes and he sends it to, to a friend across the pond in London. And he says, um, why don't you read this? I, I don't really know what's going on. The Holy Spirit has got a hold of this town. Well, the friend reads it, realizes how special this is, what's going on in Northampton, quickly gets it printed up, And starts distributing it. And this short book, which is known as A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in Northampton. Catchy title, (laughs) right? But it's direct, you get it. it. Goes from London to the English countryside to Wales to Scotland and then to every single British colony across the globe. Including Canada, by the way. Only then does it actually get back to the American colonies after it spread all over the world. And everywhere this little printed book goes, it spurs on revival there. So much so that this has come to be known as the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening, the greatest spiritual awakening the modern world has ever seen, started in a backwoods town in western Massachusetts, largely because a minister was resolved to live with zeal, to do everything for God's purpose, not his own. So Jonathan Edwards may not have taken over the world like Brain, but through his faithful zeal, he certainly turned a large part of the western world upside down. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 17. Let me just say a word of prayer as we dive in. God, we stop because um, it's important for us to acknowledge and confess that this is your word, that it's living and active, that we sit under its authority. We believe that you continue through your Holy Spirit to speak to us through this word. And so as we open it today, uh, we humbly acknowledge that we need you. We need your spirit to illuminate our lives with your word. We need to live with your inspiration as our guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just say that everyone is always in a rush to get to the last half of chapter 17 in the book of Acts. We'll see right at the end, the very last verse we read, that Paul is sent to Athens. The great... New Amsterdam or New York of the ancient world. And it's a fascinating story and it's well worth diving into and we'll get there next week. But don't skip over the first half of Acts 17. Last week we heard that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke were in Philippi. We pick things up in verse 1 of chapter 17 in the book of Acts. After leaving Philippi, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Remember in Philippi, there wasn't a Jewish synagogue. Here they find one. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. It's a very simple message. Hey, everybody, let's look at the Scriptures. These are our shared Scriptures. We call them the Old Testament we can call them the Hebrew Scriptures, the Israelite Scriptures. What they did is they opened them up. They said, let's look. It says the Messiah must suffer, be persecuted, die, and be raised again. And then Paul says, all right, let's overlay the life of Jesus. He suffers. He's persecuted. He dies. He's raised to new life. Look, friends. <laughs> it fits. Right? Right? But it says some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. And so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. And they formed a mob and started a riot in the city. I can't let this one go. So the the literal term here for this mob is market people. And I just kept thinking, like, is this what the mob looked like? I know market people and village people are a little different, but, like, somehow I just thought, that those, they don't look that scary. I don't know. Uh, I love the old authorized version translation of, of these characters. It said, uh, certain lewd fellows of a baser sort. I mean, you can't get better than that. That is, that is poetic, right? All right, let's pick things up. End of verse 5. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here. Or the ESV translation says, These men have turned the world upside down and now have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others post bond, pay a bribe, and they let them go. So there's about 150 kilometers from Philippi to Thessalonica, right at the top of our map here. Philippi to Thessalonica. These are the two stops along the way, overnight stops. It's only uh, about a two and a half hour drive these days. Still a road that connects them. But walking it along the Ignatian Way, as we talked about last week, was about two plus days journey. Thessalonica was founded in uh, the fourth century BC, a very ancient city, a very large city. So while Philippi was important, Thessalonica was the most important city in Macedonia. In fact, it was known as the first city of Macedonia, or the mother of all Macedonia, or the metropolis of Macedonia, all of these nicknames. It probably had maybe 100,000 people, maybe up to 200,000 people, which might not sound like a lot to us, but in those days, in this place, that was a major, major city center. Now, good news is not always received as good news, as we hear in this passage. In fact, uh, most folks, it seems like, in Thessalonica would have preferred no news to good news that Paul and Silas brought. Luke, by the way, seems to have stayed in Philippi. Hence, our roaming gnomes are separated today. Opposition to the gospel message uh, has been a a pretty steady theme in the first half of the book of Acts. We've encountered it over and over again, and it's not going away. In fact, it's just going to pick up more and more as we look at the last half of Acts. So let me make a few comments on this. Opposition from the gospel comes from all sorts of places. It's, It's a mistake to read the book of Acts and to think that somehow it was just the Romans who were against the early church, or somehow just just the, the Jews of the diaspora, the, the Roman Empire, who were against the early church. In fact, twice in this second missionary journey, Paul is accused by Jews of wrongdoing. Twice, he's accused of Gentiles. So we have this sort of mixed result, mixed opposition. And it goes even further because twice, the city officials or the ruling officials of the place actually believe the charges, And try to prosecute, do something against them. And twice, they don't agree. And they say, you're fools, let them go. So we have this sort of mixed bag of result. All I want to say to that is, I think as we read through Acts, and especially here in the early part of Acts chapter 17, we see that um, we control very little. We, We don't control outcomes. We control our actions, But over and over again, we're told in the book of Acts that actually it's God who is controlling the outcomes. So faithful zeal is not motivated somehow by outward results, but it's actually driven by this inner conviction, regardless of the work. This is why I love this title of Jonathan Edwards' book, The Surprising Work of God in Northampton. It's not like he was sitting there saying, well, there's a recipe for this, so if I just do X, Y, and Z, then surely this will happen. No, he's saying, look, I I am resolved to work with all my might and to do it for God's purposes, but actually this is terribly surprising to me. I didn't see it coming. I'm in charge of my actions. God is in charge of the results. The second thing I think we learn, which is connected to the first in the text, is that we can be bold in our proclamation but humble in our approach. That is, we can, be, we can be empathetic to our listeners while at the same time being emphatic of the gospel truth. You know, part of the, the gospel message that is preached by Jesus is that we are to love God and love others. In fact, he says what? Haul the other commands, hang on these two realities and sometimes i I think we get caught up in this idea of of persecution or opposition to the gospel message these these outcomes and what we do is we actually reposition it as an us versus them that somehow those who haven't accepted the gospel message they are the opposition or they are somehow the enemy because they don't accept the truth and they're pushing back against the truth. But, but this isn't actually a fit with the message that Jesus preached. Jesus preached, love God and love others. They're created in my image. They're not your enemy. And so we're to humanize those that oppose this good news. They are not the opposition or the enemy. They are children of God made in the image of God. I want to push this point a little further. I want us to think about this specific case as Paul and Silas and Timothy are in Thessalonica, this episode. We hear that some accept, some prominent women, some God-fearers, Greeks, some of the Jews even accept the good news message. But many do not. And then they go to the city officials and bring charges against them. And we think, how ridiculous! I mean, they're just trying to bring good news. What's wrong with you people? But if you really think about what they're being asked to do, you're a little bit more empathetic to their reaction. I want you to think for a minute. If um, if let's say we had a, a visiting biblical scholar just show up one day. Literally, we didn't know they were coming. This man or woman shows up and we say, Hey, oh, we know you. We, we've read some of your stuff. Why, why don't you come and address the church this morning? Right? This is what it, what have happened with Paul. So he he reasons with them on three Sabbath days. Why? How did he get this privilege? He would have been dressed like a rabbi, a teacher of the Jewish scriptures. Maybe, maybe his reputation as a, a good exegete, a good teacher of the law, actually preceded him. Maybe someone even knew who he was. Paul, come, come, teach us a little bit. So again, back to us. And this person, this biblical scholar, came and they stood on this stage and they started refuting the very things we teach. I don't know what the reaction would be. I actually tried to think through this this week. I'm like, would I be bold enough to like get up on stage and be like, all right, well, thank you. You know, show them off stage. I hope so. I do. I don't know if I would be, but I know this for sure. They would not be back next Sunday. And certainly not week three, right? But here's Paul, three different Sabbaths, reasoning with them through the Jewish scriptures. Now think about what he's teaching. Not just what we hear in in Acts as we read through it, but I actually want to bring in Paul's letter back to this church. So what we call the first letter to the Thessalonians, This is a good sort of recap, probably, of what Paul was teaching them. After all, he's he's writing a letter to them saying, remember what I was preaching to you when I was there. So what does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians? Well, the first thing he says is, turn from your gods. Remember the charge that was brought against them? They're teaching that there is another king other than Caesar. There was uh, Caesar worship in the Roman Empire. Caesar was a god. And here's Paul saying, no, 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 no. There's another god. And so emperor worship, or the rejection of emperor worship, constituted treason in the Roman Empire. Second, in the letter, Paul says that that Jesus is coming back to reign in his kingdom, and he is the son of God. In fact, he says this over and over. Which seems to indicate that a foreign king is going to successfully invade Rome, right? How else can you read that as a Roman citizen? Third, he indicates that there never really will be peace in the world until the final reign of Jesus, which again sort of undermines this whole idea that the Romans were so proud of the the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that they had brought. So you start to see how the government officials would have understood this message of Paul and Silas and Timothy. So let's go even just a little bit further here. Let's ask the question, are these false charges that they get brought up on? Are they false charges? And, and in one sense, we sort of read it and we hear it and we say, well, yeah, of course they're false charges. I mean, Paul and Silas and Timothy had no intention of actively trying to overthrow Caesar and and trying to overthrow the whole Roman Empire. They weren't sort of uh, petitioning to some monarch or some military somewhere saying, come, invade, take over, right? But in another sense, and maybe in a more important sense, I think actually the charges hold on some level. If you want to live a life of devotion and discipleship, to Jesus, your ultimate allegiance, the way you live, will be at the very least countercultural and probably at times viewed as subversive or dangerous to the political powers of the world. Friends, our ultimate hope is in Jesus and his church. As we sang about this morning already, the gates of hell cannot stand against them, nor can any military or monarch. In our world, You see, to claim that, that Jesus is Lord is a direct confrontation and a rejection of the claim that Caesar is Lord. And it doesn't just end with the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. The same pushback is true today. In the same way, those in our culture hear this news in the same threatening way to their own gods, or at least their own way of life. It's asking them to turn their world upside down. These men have been turning the world upside down. In fact, I, I think this might be as good of a definition of what the good news of Jesus Christ is as we get in the entire book of Acts. What is the good news? That Jesus has come to turn the world upside down. The phrase doesn't just apply to to the world on a sort of grand scale. It can apply to you and to me in our lives. Jesus Christ has come to turn your world upside down. Faith And Jesus continues to ask this same question. Are we ready? Am I ready to have my world turned upside down? To actually live into that reality? To embrace it in in all of its different ramifications in my life? Not just to sort of confess it, but to actually have it invade my bones so that the way I live my life proclaims its truth. I think it's at the root of the call of the gospel in all of us. Let me summarize these two points from the first part of our passage. We can control our actions. We know that. Our con- conviction is to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't control the outcomes. I think, I think it should be a sort of deep, I don't know if it's... Uh, Confirmation, or what the word is, a a deep reality that that actually what Paul and Silas and Timothy encounter, this mixed bag of results, should bring us some level of comfort. That our job is to control our actions, our faithful conviction, but we don't control the outcomes. And because of that, we can be both empathetic to our listeners and understand just what, what radical call this is for our lives. But also be emphatic and not sugarcoat the truth. Say, look, I think it's good news that Jesus has come to turn the world upside down, and here's why. I think this should dispel part of our fear of evangelism. And yes, we have a fear of evangelism, friends. Recent survey said that 98% of followers of Jesus in the world do not share evangelism their faith. 98%. You know what the the scariest thing about that stat is to me? Most of us hear that stat and say, I'm not the only one. Right? Instead of saying, I want to be the 2%. I want to be one of the 2%. That actively shares the good news of Jesus Christ in a world that so desperately needs to be turned upside down. In the survey done by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, they asked folks why. If 98% of Christians fail to share their faith with others, why? Some of the usual answers, I suppose. 9% of Christians said, I'm just too busy. Too busy to share my faith, which I read as like, do you live in a bubble and not see anyone? Like, do you not see someone when you get on the train in the morning? Anyway, Uh, a little bit more than 9%, 28% felt like they lacked the info needed to share their faith. How many do you think said they just didn't care? I found that so fascinating see there, there are no followers of Jesus out there who think my life has been turned upside down and I know the fruit that that has brought in my life and yet I just don't really care to share it with anyone we all care we all want to share our faith we all want to tell people how our lives have been turned upside down and theirs can be too so th- then what is the biggest roadblock? There's only one thing on the survey that received more than 50% of respondents saying yes to. The fear of how the other person would react. What are they going to think of me? What if what if they reject it? What if they think less of me? What if they get angry? What, what if they get mad at me? How am I going to handle that? Stuart Briscoe was a pastor I've always looked up to. Read much of his stuff when I was young. He has this great quote about zeal. The first part is, is sort of standard fare. Being a follower of Jesus involves explanation and demonstration, both audible and visible, In other words, you need to share your faith, and you need to live your faith. And these two things have to go together, word and deed ministry. We talk about this all the time here at Oak Park, that we have to walk the talk, right? But it's this last part I like so much, without being deterred by the consequences of our actions. That's the stumbling block, isn't it? All right, verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, again, as was their custom. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Verse 12. As a result, many of them believed. As did a number also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the Word of God in Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as There stands in uh, Berea, which is now called Varea, in Macedonia, in northern Greece, this monument to maybe the likely place that Paul would have come to preach the gospel an enduring monument to the gospel truth, to the world being turned upside down by these noble Bereans who were eager to receive the truth, so eager that they studied the scriptures daily to see if, in fact, what Paul was saying aligned with the truth. If, um, if Thessalonica was the mother of all Macedonia, Berea was not. So, 100,000 people, we don't know how many were in Berea, but we know that it was not even on the Ignatian Way, it was off the beaten track. Cicero calls it a little backwoods town. It was not a well-known place. Berea actually becomes the fifth city that Paul was forced out of for preaching the good news. But he leaves Timothy and Silas until he can be reunited with them at a later date. I'm fascinated by this connection between the nobility of the Bereans and their humility. Nobility and humility. In fact, this connection is linked over and over again in Scripture. And yet, culturally, it's, it's not linked at all, is it? In fact, I'm told that if you were to read some new book by some young prince noble in the world today, you probably wouldn't find a lot of humility in the book. The the word nobility here has this connotation of being open-minded, free from prejudice, a curiosity and a thirst for truth that connects the head and the heart in the Christian faith. You see, the the Bereans were more noble because they didn't just hear Paul preach on three successive Sabbaths, pass judgment on him. No, it says they search for themselves, the Scriptures, Daily. Daily. They went to the scriptures to see if this upside down world, this good news of Paul, was true. Passionate zeal needs more than just a heart on fire, doesn't it? It needs a humble head. Have you ever met someone who has the former but not the latter? Someone who's just all fired up, all riled up, all just jazzed about something, and they're convinced about this, but they're sort of lacking in the humble head part. What happens with those people? Two things, usually. First thing is often it fizzles and fades very quickly, right? When they sort of come to the realization that there's not much substance to this. In fact, this is what Jesus says in, in the parable of the sower when he says, Some of the seed will fall on rocky soil. It will spring up fast. They will have zeal. Their hearts will be on fire. But then they realize they don't have roots. It's not connected to a humble head and it withers and fades. Or, or the alternative is the, they turn these sort of ideologies into a weaponized form of hate. Vitriol. You see, zeal can turn into hatred and hurt very quickly. Paul says this to the Roman church. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. The nobility of the Bereans is found in the humility to submit themselves daily to searching the Scripture for God's truth. Does this message of an upside-down world actually align with what God has told us in His Word? Before Christmas, sometime in December, I challenged you to begin thinking about what your Bible reading plan would be for 2023. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or anything like that, but I also know that around this time in January, New Year's resolutions start to fall off rather quickly. So, what a perfect time to bring it up again. Is this church, is this community going to be like those noble Bereans who choose to search the Scriptures daily? So here's my offer to you. Two things, all right? Number one, if you do not have a Bible, we will buy you one, okay? Even if you come to me and say, you know, I've always read the King James Version and that's what I'm most comfortable with, I will go out and buy you a King James Version. Or maybe you come to me and say, I've always read the King James Version, I have no idea what's going on. Certain lewd fellows of a baser sort. What does that mean, right? I've heard about Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. I want to try that. Or, or I've heard that the ESV translation is really good, or the NIV translation. I will buy you that Bible. Okay? This cannot be a roadblock to reading Scripture. So that's offer number one. Offer number two, it struck me as I was reading and studying this passage that the Bereans did this together. Which is a beautiful thing, isn't it? And I thought, you know, we did that. I, I don't know, some of you might remember this at the start of COVID. When we actually couldn't physically meet together, we, um, we joined reading plans together. and it, it was wonderful. It was a beautiful thing. And I thought, why, why did we let that go? So, really basic, simple introduction. I signed up for a 10-day reading plan. It's on the book of Nehemiah, I thought, well, Nehemiah is about a building project. We are hoping to have a building project here in the next year. Maybe this would be a good fit. Dr. Michael Yusuf writes a little um, devotional intro to it. Then you read uh, one or two passages from Scripture. They're all there. There's an app if you want it on your phone. You can do it on your computer desktop. And we can do it together. And you see right at the bottom here, oh, it's not great resolution. This is day one, by the way. Oh, and there's two participants. I didn't even think I invited anyone. (laughs) One of you is genius. I don't know how you found me. Anyway, uh, the, the last piece is this piece right here. Talk it over. And there's just sort of a chat function. We're together as we go through it every day for 10 days. That's all it is, 10 days. At the end of the day, we can write back and forth. Hey, I I didn't understand this. Hey, what did you think of this? Hey, when I read this, it made me think about this. So, my offer, I will buy you a Bible. My second offer, come, join me. Do this 10 days. It's going to start Wednesday, and it will be in the weekly email. The invite, okay? So if you don't get the weekly email, you should. Come see us, we'll sign you up but I will also email it to you directly if you want. Friends, I believe that that faithful zeal, a passionate conviction for the good news that turns the world upside down is ultimately always a gift from God. It's always a surprising work. But I also believe that there are actions that we can control. To be able to sort of open ourselves up, or at least turn ourselves toward God's Spirit, who is at work in our lives. In his book, Overcoming Apathy, Uche Anazor talks about the importance of taking responsibility for, for things that maybe we, we think are a little bit too mundane. We don't necessarily associate them with zeal, being passionate, conviction, on fire. We think, oh, those are just like basic things, right? Right? those aren't the really exciting things of God. He says, no, these are the things that actually open us up to this surprising work of God's Spirit. I talk to a lot of folks who say things to me like, I just don't feel God right now. or I I feel like God has removed Himself from me or is absent from me. I'm not encountering Him. I'm not experiencing Him. There's no fire. There's no passion. My question back Is always, is is it God that has withdrawn? And maybe that's the case. It's a possibility. Or have you deliberately turned yourself away? Have you actually veered off a path where God is pursuing you passionately? He wants this intimate relationship with you, but you're making small little choices, maybe mundane in your mind, that are taking you in a completely different direction. So Anasor writes, zeal is commitment to love and pursue the good even when it hurts or when no one else sees and the possibility is open to all of us you may not feel that way because your, and I love this phrase your shadow apathy has followed you for so long nevertheless it is true you can change you can move from indifferent to fervor from pajamas to purpose here's what I appreciate about Anazor's wisdom it, it connects the head to the heart to the hands. All in a place of humility. That it's God's work on the outcomes, my work on the actions. I have this um, sort of like personal aversion to hype. Some of you that know me well know this. Like anything that's sort of sensationalized, I like break out in a rash. And I dislike so I have never seen anything Star Wars. That's my confession this morning. And it's not because I think it's like bad or I'm not interested. I so dislike the hype when I was young around Star Wars that I've just decided, not doing it. I refuse. I'm not gonna engage. The same thing is true with, with faith. I sort of have this aversion to to like big rah-rah Christianity, celebrity Christianity. Everything about it just oh, makes me cringe a little bit. And so repeatedly, you have heard me up here opening God's Word, saying things like, we do things quietly. We do things in hidden. We do things not because the world is going to take notice, not because it's, it's going to have lots of fanfare, not because somehow social media is going to blow up. We do things because it's the right thing to do. And we're faithful. In the little things. And that's the kind of community that we will be. And yet this phrase, these men have turned the world upside down, just captured me this week. And I think it captured me because there was, there was no pretension from Paul and Silas and Timothy that somehow they had turned the world upside down. No, they had just done the mundane, small, little things. The faithfulness, the, the conviction of zeal that is often hidden that actually resulted, God's outcomes, was that it's true. They were turning the world upside down in small, little acts even when it appeared to be a mixed bag of results. So Anazor says, what do I mean by this? How do we live out this zeal and commitment? How do we do away with this shadow apathy? Control your small little actions. This is his list. Go to bed on time so that you don't just lapse into your morning. Commit to being with God's people every Sunday. Be inclined to say yes when asked to provide meals for church members. Be on a cleanup crew after a large event. Give someone a ride to the airport. Work hard Listen to this one. Work hard when one form of engaging Scripture begins to grow stale. Find another way to feed on the Word. I don't know, maybe like an online group reading plan. Dedicate yourself to praying regularly for a specific missionary. That one caught me. I pray for our global missions partners but I'm not sure I've ever had the sort of zeal and conviction to pick one for an extended length of time and pray for that mission. Finally, devote ourselves to understanding cultural issues with care and nuance, not with a sort of headless zeal in the echo chambers of social media, but actually look at it, reason. hear other points of view, other sides of the debate. want to close by going back to Paul's letter, first letter to the Thessalonian church he writes this in chapter 1 for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power again he's saying it's not my power but we witnessed it And what's so interesting is when we read the first part of Acts chapter 17 we're like Paul it's not very sensational It's a mixed result here. In fact, you got pushed out of Thessalonica. There were charges brought against you. He says, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. See, that is what they brought. Zeal. Deep conviction. An emphatic truth. You know how we lived among you. How? For your sake. Jonathan Edwards 43, resolved, never henceforth until I die, to act as if I was any way my own. But entirely and altogether, God's. For your sake. We lived our lives for your sake. Here's the great thing about this. It's not just these super apostles. It's not just Paul and Silas and Timothy. Oh, they're so wonderful. They have these, these personal convictions and they lived this outward life for us. Not for themselves, but for God's kingdom. And then he goes on and he says, what? Verse 6 to 8. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. It's not all rainbows and butterflies. With the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message of an upside down world rang out. Rang out. It, it echoed. The word here is, it, it had massive reverberations. The, the epicenter of the earthquake might have been Thessalonica, but, but the effects of the earthquake were felt all over. Why? Because they became imitators. They lived their lives, not for themselves, but for the sake of the world around them. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. In other words, you too, are turning the world upside down. It came to them and it went through them. Here's the cool thing. Only in hindsight, only in hindsight does this become clear to Paul and Silas. Again, in in the thick of it, in the midst of it, when Jason is up on charges for them, on their behalf in Thessalonica, no one's writing, hey, it came with power and look at how the great results, the outcome here. They're like, I don't, I don't know if this church is going to survive. I don't even know if there is a church here. It might die. By the way, that church is still in existence. 2,000 years later. One of the oldest, continuous, existing churches in the world. So how do you turn the world upside down? I think our, our world thinks that it's either with these sort of grandiose master plans a la Pinky and the Brain or with some type of sensationalism and hype that turns out to be pretty empty. I think Acts 17 reminds us that it's actually with a faithful zeal. Often met with persecution, as Paul says. Often met not with, not with great results, but with mixed results. And in the thick of it, we can't see really what God is up to. It's only after that we see clearly that God's Holy Spirit is in charge of the outcomes. Last May, um, we were preparing a grant application for our expansion and for our renovation project. And as adverse as I am to sort of hype and sensationalism, as I got handed the grant that was so wonderfully prepared by people like Doug Walker and Don Driediger and Jason, not that Jason, but Jason Roshan, Greg Tarnowski, I couldn't help but feel uh, just a little sense of pride in our community. I think I even brought it up here last time showed you. I mean, talk about sort of mundane zeal. Filling out grant applications is not exactly the most exciting things. But it was the end that always caught my attention. You see, there's these ten letters at the end of the application from other organizations attesting to the work that Oak Park does. But I got a little caught up in it. I thought, yeah, maybe, maybe we are turning the world upside down. I mean, listen to what these people are saying. This is amazing. This is a testament to God's Holy Spirit at work. I thought, this is what God is doing. This is how God is at work in our midst. Surely, this will be exactly what we need. It was about, oh, I don't know, two or three weeks after we submitted the grant application, that bids came back for the project, and we realized very quickly that this was not a viable project. You talk about the the thick fog of not understanding. Everything we had done felt like it was lining up. It felt like God was at work. It felt like even that, that God was was turning the world upside down in and through this just small, out-of-the-way community. And then we thought, this is an impassable roadblock. We're just trying to be faithful to what God is calling us to, to step out in faith, to take a risk, to do something, to use this building, this resource for furthering his kingdom and his ministry. And at, at the end of last May, I just stand up here and say the project isn't, just on hold, it's off, unless something happens. And then it wasn't long after that, that we had a a gentleman who most of you have met named Norm McClennan come and said, hey, I want to volunteer. God has placed it on my heart to help you with this building project. Norm has decades and decades of senior executive leadership experience in the construction industry. And he said, you can't pay me. I will volunteer because this is my ministry and because God has called me to do it. And we started to say, well, maybe there is another path here. (laughs) Maybe God is at work. Maybe his spirit is, is finding a way forward that we can actually proceed with this thing that we think so strongly that we are supposed to do. And so we've continued to make strides, and we've continued to try to bring you into the loop and inform you about all the different changes and the the different things that are going on, and we've made great progress. And then this last week, I got a letter from the grant application saying, uh, Dear Mr. Scruggs, your grant application is successful. No. I think I read the letter eight times, before I actually uh, reached out to anyone. Um, Not just successful, but for the maximum amount. So, yeah. The deal is, it's a matching grant, friends. So here's the thing. Every dollar you and I give, our provincial government will match. Every single dollar. There is no applicant who got as much money as Oak Park in the province. Friends, when you're in the thick of the fog, you're not sure what God is doing or what he is up to, and you're just trying to remain faithful with a certain level of conviction and zeal, it's often in hindsight that you see what's going on. And so I sent this, this email to our elders. A very simple email, attached the letter, and then I just said, by the way, I'm very aware that to whom much is given, much is required. See, never in my wildest dreams did I think we would have an opportunity like this. Never in my wildest dreams did I think we'd even be successful on the grant application, much less to the maximum amount. And so my immediate reaction was, what is God asking us to do? God is at work, friends. And we have this this opportunity with this money to do something that we are being called to be faithful to. Friends, never again will we have an opportunity of this nature. And I think it's incumbent upon us. I think we are responsible... To show the world around us, including its leaders, that we have a zeal and a passion to turn the world upside down in the best possible way. That is to extend love and to serve our community in tangible ways. So let's do that, friends. You're going to get more information coming out after this. We have a congregational vote on February the 12th after service. You'll have all the information you need for that vote well beforehand. But today, today we eat cake and we celebrate. All right? It's hard to avoid hype when you get something like that. I just, let's pray. God, you are good. God, we confess that um, we are so small-minded we, we think that we see all the angles. We think that we see all the options. We, th- we think we see what you're doing, but we, we really don't. And So we confess that. We confess that in our lack of humility, we have um, tried to take things over. We confess that we have called out to you, wondering where you are when you've been there all along. And so we give thanks. We celebrate. We offer you our praise today, and we, we say thank you. We ask that your Holy Spirit helps us to be faithful in and through this gift. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.